Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in for this podcast. I appreciate your support and always providing important feedback. Today's podcast is a roundtable discussion about clinical trials in general, the complexity of designing clinical trials. And I've decided to use multiple myeloma as a prototype to explain and describe the complexity and the difficulty of really executing, enrolling, and completing clinical trials. So um, I've invited two junior investigators, one from the United States, another from Canada, and a senior investigator from the United States to reflect on the clinical trial execution, the difficulty of it, and really how can we move the field forward? We all know that much of the progress, much of the success in multiple myeloma and in cancer in general is because of clinical trials and the ability to incorporate these novel therapies, innovative therapies into current paradigms of treatment. And this really is not easy. There's a lot of issues to execute on clinical trials. First, you have to come up with the idea. Is the idea good? Does it help patients? Is it innovative? Are you going to get buy-in for this idea from colleagues, from other investigators, from mentors, from patient advocates, from other folks that are heavily involved and integrated into these clinical trials? Then you need to design the clinical trial, of course, and you need to make sure that the trial is powered to whatever endpoint that you believe is appropriate. Then you need to secure funding. How easy is to get funding? We're going to talk to the Canadian investigator and to the U.S. investigator. Is it easy to get funding? What if you don't get funding? What if you get funding? Is it enough? Is it not enough? And then you need to execute, open, enroll, and so on. Really, it is very important to have these views because I believe ultimately patients benefit. So I hope you enjoy today's podcast and I hope you are able to watch these podcasts on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can visit my website at www.chadinabhan.com. You can also always provide any feedback, subscribe, like, refer a colleague, but please provide some feedback to the podcast episodes that you have. If you are a loyal listener, I promise you a very nice t-shirt. And in fact, my guests today are going to be wearing the Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirts. They're comfortable and they are perfect for working out or for running. Without further ado, clinical trial difficulties on Healthcare Unfiltered. Honestly, I'm very excited about this. Um, you know, when you say honestly, it means that other times it's not honest. So you got to be careful when, with doing this. This is very exciting for me because it took a while to arrange this podcast episode. And I'm excited because there's four of us on this call and we are all wearing the Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt, which is like probably unprecedented. Uh, yeah, I know. This is a great, uh, this is the best. But, but uh, in all seriousness, I have three amazing clinicians faculty, investigators, researchers who want to do the best for our patients with cancer in general and multiple myeloma in particular. And I've invited the three of them because we wanna talk about just the complexity of designing and executing on clinical trials. 
Uh, we're going to start with some introductions, but really the purpose of this podcast is what does it take to do a clinical trial from initiation to completion? What is What, what are the problems? What are the hidden uh, spots that we need to look at. And, um, and for that, we have junior investigators and a senior investigator uh, with us because uh, the senior dude is going to tell us about the problems when he was a junior guy. All right. Uh, so Hera, I want to start with you, a little bit about you, introduction, where you are, where you practice, and what got you into the field of multiple myeloma and becoming a clinical trialist? Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, so I'm Hera. I'm a hematologist and a researcher at McMaster University in Canada. And so I finished my fellowship back in 2016, spent a couple of years doing a master's and then have been on faculty for the last four years. Uh, I have a special interest in older adults with multiple myeloma and so particularly focused on clinical trials around that and then work with two of our cooperative groups in Canada, the Canadian Myeloma Research Group, as well as the uh, uh, Canadian Clinical Trials Group. Uh, and then I'm a, I'm a board member for Myeloma Canada. So quite, uh, have done all my training in Canada. So hopefully I'll give you a slightly different perspective about challenges that are unique for our patients and how unique in terms of doing clinical trials as well. And Hira, is there something specific that sparked your interest in, in uh, older adults or myeloma specifically, or just uh, natural uh, stuff that happens? You know, I really like the longitudinal patient relationship. So I love seeing the patients at the time of diagnosis and getting to know them now for over a decade. And so for me, part of it is seeing in fellowship, you know, patients that you get to see them longitudinally over time was one of my key reasons. And I, and I do genuinely enjoy taking care of older adults. So it was a natural fit to be in multiple myeloma. Okay. As long as, uh, you know, older is a moving target. I get nervous whenever they say older. Now I'm, I'm becoming close to that age that Hira is going to take care of. Uh, Morali, a little bit about you, where you are, where you practice, what you do, and what got you interested also in the field of myeloma. So my name is Murali Janakiram, and um, I'm an assistant professor at City of Hope. It is really a pleasure to share, to uh, uh, participate in this along with Shadi, Hira, and Saad. Um, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Shadi, for bringing us all together. My interest is uh, in immunotherapies, uh, specifically cellular immunotherapies. Um, in multiple myeloma, that's where most of my focus is on. Uh, I have been a part of a, a clinic a member of the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group or ECOG um, uh, for quite a few years um, and, um, and have been accustomed to the group as well. What got me interested in myeloma Actually, I don't know. <laughs> that's the that's the real answer. So uh, um, I start. I started doing Milo. I started doing Milo. I just got interested and uh, uh, and stay and and stayed in it uh, uh, over that. You know, sometimes sometimes it's interesting. Like I I, I feel I'm curious to see here Saad's thoughts. I sometimes feel we our career is shaped. Um, some of it is luck. Mm -hmm. which is the mentors you work with. Honestly, you start your fellowship and you end up, you know, getting paired with a faculty member and, you know, you just like it and you keep going. And sometimes could be 
uh, interest in the biology of disease. In my in my case, as an example, was totally completely luck. I was at Northwestern. I started working in malignant hematology, and I liked it. And probably if I if I was linked with more solid tumor, people would have been different. Saad, how about you? Um, um, a little bit about you. You've had obviously a longer career than. Uh, than uh, Morali, Morali and, um, and Hira, but uh, tell us about you, where it started and, um, and where you are now. No, thank you. Um, it's actually a, 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 my privilege, actually, Morali and Hira, to be with you guys and, and share some of you know, my experiences. Um, when I um, got into my fellowship training, uh, Chadi, I actually wanted to be a breast oncologist. So, you know, I, I was, um, um, I had done, um, you know, rotation in um, Sophia Mariver's lab at University of Michigan and Arbor. And, and, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I started my fellowship. But uh, I went to this nice, uh, you know, uh, seminar on, on heat shock proteins, um, you know, with my later lab mentor. Um, and around that time, the unfolded protein response was, was being looked at, you know, along with proteosome inhibition. Um, so this is like, you know, mid to, you know, um, yeah, 2006, 2007. Um, and that's what got me in, you know, interested in myeloma. I ended up spending, um, you know, um, time in the lab. Um, and because I was on a J1 visa um, and really looking for an academic myeloma place, um, I went to Arkansas um, as my first faculty position. And, and um, you know, the rest is uh, history. I, I had, um, um, you know, I had very strong, um, although, you know, old-fashioned tough mentorship from Dr. Barlogi. Um, and, uh, you know, that, but, but that really, you know, propelled my career and, um, it was a major crash course in clinical and translational science, as well as, you know, how to do clinical trials, how to think critically about some of these questions and innovate. So, you know, um, it's always a pleasure to, you know, chat with the, you know, younger investigators. I won't, I don't call them junior investigators because, you know, you guys will fix this problem. Uh, Saad, I know a couple of things about you uh, that I'm going to say. Number one is you have an MBA. Tell me why you went back to get an MBA. So, um, so you know, it's, it's different, uh, you know, um, how, how your, your career kind of evolves. And, um, you know, as I was getting, you know, more into the mid-career mode, um, you know, I was recognizing it's so important for you to understand uh, the holistic business of medicine. And, and it's important for you to appreciate what's really happening, you know, in the world. You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, cost of drugs, but, you know, I understand it's so much better now in the context of, you know, how the world economy works, you know, um, you know, and, and what influences, you know, a lot of those decisions. Um, um, so, you know, even, even, you know, the administrative task, you know, how do you, um, you know, project, you know, the growth of, of your service or your department, you know, how do you, you know, think about, uh, you know, um, the money matters, um, you know, how do you frame the argument to get resources for what you want to do? Um, I think of things in a very different way compared to how I did five or six years ago. And you're currently sad at Memorial as the chief of the myeloma service. Um, what, what does that mean? Like how many myeloma physicians are there um, obviously it's a, you know, we all know how big Memorial is, but, um, how many physicians do take care of myeloma within the Memorial system? Um, so we have, so, so, you know, I have nine, uh, physicians in the myeloma service, um, you know, who, 
you know who you know who are part of my team but but really the myeloma uh, care team uh, is comprising of 16 people so we have you know um, you know people like Sergio and Heather Landau and, and David Chung who are part of you know adult BMT and transplant cell therapy but you know we um, you know uh, we're part of the combined myeloma um, uh, care team. So, you know, in terms of our research meetings, our, you know, multidisciplinary rounds, we do it together. And, you know, I, I live in, in in three services. So I'm I'm part adult BMT, part cellular therapy as well. So, um, you know, it, that, that makes for, for a very, you know, good multidisciplinary approach when you're thinking about doing clinical trials, you know, we're not thinking individually, we're thinking as a team. So we talk about, okay, where are the gaps? You know, what are the questions we want to ask? And, and develop our portfolio um, of research that way. Before I go back to Hira, I just want to ask you just in, uh, I want to make sure listeners obviously understand the breadth of expertise that we're talking about. Do you know how many clinical trials you have led or, or co-led and um, uh, in the myeloma space or in general, um, uh, including randomized control trials? I I just want to make sure at least that listeners realize that you have the expertise to even opine on the topic. Otherwise, why in the world do I have you on? I'm, I'm not, you know, keeping counts or numbers, but, but I would say, you know, I've, I've been part of um, um, probably close to 50 different, um, uh, you know, clinical trials in my career so far. Um, uh, you know, whether it's, it's at sub-I or investigator or lead investigator in terms of randomized, um, you know, phase two or three studies, um, probably, you know, um, 17 or 18 um, that I've been part of, um, several that I've led and, and have published on. Well, you could definitely do a better job, though. I mean, I, I don't think I'm, it's not that, I'm not that impressed, but I think you could certainly get, get on and do a, few, a little bit more, please. All right. So um, here, before I, before I get started, um, I just want to us to agree maybe on a couple of principles, and you tell me if they're completely off. So, are we able to answer every question with a prospective randomized control trial, Hira? Um, so I would say we would want to, but I don't think that's possible. Why? Why can't we? Uh, I think there's actually lots of reasons for that. And one of them is that, you know, um, going back to older adults, for example, older adults sometimes are underrepresented in clinical trials. Clinical trials may not be powered enough for them. So for in those cases, actually having registry, real-world studies to evaluate outcomes can be equally as important. So not to say that random clinical trials are not incredibly important, but when we look at the evidence and how to actually treat patients, I think that, you know, looking at some of these additional methodologies is equally as important. And then lots of trials and Saad probably knows this, you know, more than anybody else, you can't always, there's so many barriers in leading clinical trials and executing clinical trials. So although we want to be able to answer everything through a randomized clinical trial, that is the ideal that is just not feasible. So having some alternative ways to still be able to answer those questions uh, is really important. Morali, what, what your thoughts? you agree? Any other comments in terms of the, can we do everything with an RCT, prospective RCT, or we have to be more creative? Um, agree with Hira that uh, there is no way we can do prospective RCTs uh, for every question. 
And one of the difficult, good and bad things about what is happening now is a tremendous pace of uh, science, especially uh, with respect to how fast effective drugs are brought upon. And uh, because effective drugs are brought upon quickly, if we have to do one randomized trial, even for a relapsed refractory disease, it will take more than 10 years. While we, by that time, we might have two or three equivalent or better drugs. And we really need to consider how we, we can bring those to the patients faster. So I would say, it is getting tougher and tougher to answer every question through a randomized clinical trial with an endpoints of even PFS, let alone uh, overall survival. That doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, do it, but I think we need to find innovative ways of comparison uh, for answering the same question. Saad, do you tend to agree with that? So in terms of... Um... Doing clinical trials for niche populations, I completely agree. You know, for niche populations um, where we either don't have a standard of care or we extrapolate a standard of care for those patients, you know, um, I think you, you know, um, doing single arm studies, um, you know, is, is a very feasible thing. Um, you know, one of my, you know, mentors, uh, Bob Orlowski, you know, um, you know, uh, I, I really like his, his saying from, from the early time when I was um, a young investigator in SWAT. He said, Saad, there are trials that you want to do, and then there are trials that you can do. So I think being a bit pragmatic, um, you know, is, is very important uh, for those niche populations. I think, you know, for, you know, so, so you, you don't need randomized trials to answer every question, but you do need randomized trials, you know, to um, you know, influence the standard of care, uh, especially for, you know, the frontline patients. Um, endpoints is a totally different discussion, you know, and, and, and I'm sure we're going to get into, you know, what would be the appropriate endpoints. Uh, but I think at least for, for the broader, uh, you know, frontline patients, um, you know, um, not the niche populations like, you know, the elderly frail or plasma cell leukemias, et cetera. I think randomized um, studies would be the right way to do it. So, so here, let me go back to you and um, I want to uh, uh, hone in a little bit on your experience and what you, um, uh, and then I want to go to Morali with that. And then I will have Saad reflect on that experience you've had. So um, when you decided to, design a clinical trial um, and try to take it forward. What's that process like? What, um, like did, how did you decide that I want to attempt to answer which question? Because there's so many questions out there, right? I mean, there's so many questions. Take me through your mindset, how you decided what the question you wanted to answer and how you went about it. So then we can maybe reflect on the difficulties and, and, and what you went through. Okay, sure. No, thank you for that question. And I look forward to hearing some of the feedback about where I was wrong or right. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, my interest again has been in older adults with multiple myeloma. I, I also practice in an entirely publicly funded healthcare system. So some of the questions that I want to know the answer to are actually quite unique. Uh, so to give you an example, you know, myeloma currently is 3% of all cancers in the province I practice yet takes up 20% of the budget. 
So what I can use for my standard of care is very different. So questions around sequencing, reusing drugs are actually really important. Like, you know, I can only get lenalidomide once. Every drug I can only get once. And if you progress on it, you will never get access to it again. So a lot of the cooperative group with the Canadian Myeloma Research Group, and I work with the Canadian uh, trial, Cancer Trials Group, some of our questions are a little bit more unique that we've asked. So you can look at some of the trials that, the, you know, again, some of my mentors have left, led, like Donna Reese, um, where they're about adding things like cyclophosphamide to different agents, um, because that's all we have. And we need to maximize every ounce of every regimen that we have. So one of the questions that I've been particularly interested in is about continuous daratumumab, right? And that has a particular role now in older adults, because uh, as of February of this year, we finally have access to the publicly funded DRD for, for, for frontline transplant ineligible patients, which is an incredible opportunity in Canada, but represents one of the most expensive regimens for a patient who's going to be potentially on it for five, six years. It also means you'll never get access to another anti-CD38 because you would have progressed on it at any line of treatment. So, so, so for, for the non-myeloma listeners of the audience, I want to be sensitive to them. Um, maybe just spell out what is, like, what's DRT? What is that? Sure, sure. So, you know, one of the regimens is daratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, which is kind of really as one of the uh, pivotal regimens now for transplant ineligible older adults. It's a fantastic regimen with overall survival benefit, fantastic PFS, but it's unique because it's given continuously. So it comes with a huge treatment burden and financial burden for a publicly funded healthcare system. It also limits options for patients later on because you will not get exposed to that class of agents again. So one of the questions we've been really interested in is, is could we use some form of a fixed duration uh, anti-CD38 or daratumumab, get the most out of it, and make it more you know, feasible in a publicly funded healthcare system, and then also allow patients to reaccess it. So that's um, really been one of the ideas, and I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it further, but really one of the ideas that I've been taking forward with uh, a lot of the clinical trials group. And again, because until we had access to that agent, there's no, no way to ask that question of fixed duration treatment, because as you can imagine, that's not a, a very pharma friendly question. Uh, and with limited, you know, now it's really hard to do any cooperative group trials. So that's one of the questions we've really been trying to take forward in Canada, which may be a bit more unique for us, but especially for the patients I see, it's an extremely relevant question. So you had this idea, um... You like it. You're convinced it helps patients in Canada, which is fair. This is where you practice. What is your next step after you have the idea? Do, do you call a friend? Do you call somebody like Saad or Vincent Rajkumar and say, hey, is this a crazy idea or is it a good idea? Like, what's your next step? Okay, so great. You know, so I have a smaller group. Our, our cooperative groups are not as big. So, you know, we're all kind of on a WhatsApp group. We all get together for drinks. Like it's, it's, it's easier. Um, so, you definitely know, we're more fun than the Americans. Look at I, the, we are, you know, the Canadian group is definitely more fun. Um, and so, you know, I've been floating around this idea for a while. We've, we've talked to some pharma companies as well to float different trial design ideas. Overall, there was appetite for this idea. Um, you know, so since that time, I can tell you, we originally came up with this idea. It's probably been about four years. 
until we had access to the publicly funded drugs, this idea was entirely stalled. We couldn't do it because if we weren't going to have daratumumab, there's no, there's no, there's no way one could ever afford that. Um, and since that time, you know, we have now taken it to our Canadian, um, the Canadian Cancer Clinical Trials Group, which again, I have lots of great senior mentorship in that. And so we've been slowly moving this along. We've tried lots of partnership with lots of different pharma companies, even for correlative work, but, but but, you know, again, everybody has a different way of how to do things. Um, and one of the things I've kind of really learned over the last few years, and, you know, Vincent Rajkumar has been involved in this idea for quite some time and has been really helpful in trying to help us move this along, is that, you know, he said to me, he's like, well, you can't, you're not going to be able to please everything. Just think, please everyone, but also don't totally come off the table. So meet people halfway, because again, in the Canadian group, I have people like Nizar Bayless, who are you know, very uh, translational focused, and unless it's an MRD endpoint or MRD is incorporated, it can't be done. But I know the cost of MRD, it won't be feasible. So there's lots of nuances where we really had to come up with an idea that we could please as many people as possible and slowly take it forward. So the current status of this trial is that, um, you know, we have hopefully approval at the national level. Now I have to seek the funding, which is going to be the absolute biggest barrier for this. Um, you know, when I've talked to Vincent Rajkumar and some of the other folks around this idea and told them the cost of it, it's actually a pretty cheap trial for how, how expensive daratumumab is. But different agencies work differently in Canada, right? So the healthcare funding agency, research agencies, there's no crosstalk between them. So they can't see that even if we were to save a year off daratumumab, it would probably pay, pay for the trial itself. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I would say I've been, I've been very lucky to have lots of mentorship and I, I cannot emphasize that point enough. You know, one of the parts I, I forgot to mention earlier was why did I pick older adults? It's because I met Tanya Wilds throughout my career trajectory and through Ash CRTI and it was the pivotal moment. I wanted to be a community hematologists never do an ounce of research. And Tanya entirely changed my career trajectory. So one person can influence a lot. And also, you know, when I have small successes, I have people to celebrate. And when I fail, I have equally people who are just as invested. So mentorship has been key and slowly we're moving along this idea and have gotten lots of support. Uh, around it. So maybe if you call me back in another few few years, I'll tell you whether I was successful or not. But Hira, so you started this four years ago, like the idea came to you four years ago. The trial has not even launched yet. I don't even have it funded. You don't have it funded. <laughs> the idea is there. You got it. So it's four years and it's not there. Saad, um, first of all, we all know that Vincent Rajkumar is always wrong. I mean, we don't need, I mean, this is always the case. I mean, we don't need to, I mean, hopefully he's listening and he realizes we disagree with everything he says. But, uh, but you know, this is four years and it's not even launched yet. So, I mean, the field is moving fast. How would you, how would you approach something like this and a problem like this? And how would you, like, what's your reaction to the experience that uh, Hira has had over the past several years? Her challenges are unique. Before I comment on that, first off, you know, um, Vincent is one of my really close friends, and you know, um, and I consider him 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 one of my um, mentors. I've learned so much from him about the years, and 
you know. But, but, what, but you're still going to disagree with him. I, I, I do disagree with him. And that's Perfect. the beauty of, of uh, you know, uh, friendship. You can have different academic views and still be, you know, very, very good friends because, you know, at heart that, you know, what you're trying to do is, uh, you know, um, uh, get better answers for for your patients, you know, and, and move the field forward. Um, so, um, you know, with, with that being said, uh, the challenges that Hera is facing are very similar to what we face in the U.S. cooperative group mechanism. Um, you know, when, when I was, again, a junior investigator in the co-op mechanism, I used to get frustrated. We had good ideas, but then it would take forever to vet those ideas through the various committees and then try to get funding from or commitment from pharma and then you know get the you know key stakeholders in the NCI CTEP mechanism and the NCI myeloma steering committee to to you know um, get the trial going so I'll, I'll give you a very nice example here so this uh, swag 1803 study with dara len versus len maintenance this idea actually started as an exa len versus len maintenance in 2012 Okay, and and Jatin Shah was still you know in academics, and he was the investigator who came up with that idea, and then you know there was a lot of back and forth, and OS had to be the primary endpoint, you know, and and we were you know MRD couldn't be incorporated because it was too early, there was lack of data, so so eventually by the time that idea was coming to fruition, as was it was 2016, and Dara had entered into the schema of things. So then we had to go back to the drawing board, you know, Jatin left academia, then we, you know, got Amrita to, to be the PI and, and that idea. So, so by the time that that original idea from 2012 came to fruition, it was 20, you know, 2018. The study started in, in, in early 2019, if I remember correctly. But, you know, halfway through the study right now, that question is becoming antiquated. Okay, so, so, you know, the challenge with, you know, the ideas that we generate is we don't know what that five or six year horizon is going to look like, because a lot of innovation is not coming from academia, it's coming from pharma. And, and so that, that becomes a challenge. So my, my advice, you know, is, is always look at that five year horizon um, with your geographic area. So I think the question you're trying to ask is still relevant in Canada and, and just, you know, pursue it. And, you know, we can talk about offline, how, how to, you know, think about um, getting that, that kind of study um, off the ground. Um, I'm not sure if Sikandar Alawadi has reached out to you uh, or talked about his trial that he's been trying to do in the older patient population, but that's been on the block for three years now as well. So, yeah, so I, mean, I, I think this, this is really, really, uh, and, and, you know, I'm just joking, trying to create friction between <laughs> you and Vincent and everything, because, you know, well, I, as, I, I, not I, as a podcast host, <laughs> I thrive on conflict. See what I mean? That's what it's worth. I, <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, morally, um, I want to hear about your experience and uh, tell me again, similar question. How did the idea come to your mind? What idea and how did you go around it? And then let's have Saad reflect to it. Sure. Uh, my question uh, was very simple. What is the best triplet in first relapse in multiple myeloma? That was a question which I wanted to answer 
uh, straightforward uh, question. This started approximately three to four years ago. Again, it's very similar to Hira story, no different uh, in, a, in the US version of the uh, Hira story. That's what I would say. Um, we started with this question. At that time, CAR-T trials were slightly showing promises by specifics where it have not fully entered the clinical space. And that is where this is. Uh, Griffin, I think side is the best uh, uh, answer, but- uh, You was, do know most of my listeners have no idea what Griffin is, right? Fair enough, okay. So you uh, got to tell us a few of these things. <laughs> sure. In, in, relapse, uh, in first relapse of myeloma, there are multiple three drug options which are, uh, uh, which are there. But the question was, most of these were done against two drugs, and we always know that three is better than two, but never a direct three, three versus three in a randomized phase three in order to see which one will give the better clinical endpoints, either it's progression-free survival or overall survival. So this was a question in the field, and I still think this is a question in the field at this point of time. Um, the next, at that time, daratumumab was the commonly used uh, first relapse regimen, but we did not know which one would be a better partner. Is it daratumumab with carfilzomib or is it daratumumab with pomalidomide? And this is the question, and we believe that these were the two best uh, and less toxic uh, first relapse regimens to answer. So this is where we started the idea. What is the best first relapse regimen? Um, at that time, daratumumab was just being started to be used in the frontline setting because the Griffin trial of four versus three had not read out. Um, and we uh, envisioned that even if it comes up, it will still be a relevant question to answer in the field. Um, so started with ECOG and uh, it was Vincent uh, uh, Shahji um, and uh, Sagar, uh, Mike Thompson. So they were all there. Uh, we discussed the concept at length and after about two to three months, we agreed that, that an ECOG and, and looking at other cooperative groups, including SWOG, that they were not doing a re relapse trial and first relapse, we said, okay, fine, let's go ahead. So wrote the concept and then ECOG um, uh, executive committee approved it after approximately uh, four months. Um, uh, and, uh, and then after a couple of months, it, it uh, went to uh, NCI CTAP. Uh, but before that, we sought Janssen's approval. We got Jan Janssen to buy in and they said, yes, we will support the, the trial. Uh, with uh, uh, the uh, from a drug standpoint, so we secured the funding. ECOG CTAP approved it. We had a valid question and NCI step. Um, I presented the trial. Um, it the trial was powered for progression-free survival, uh, but then um, it did not go through NCI CTAP because they had two valid concerns: one, power of first relapse trial for overall survival. And the second one is it was not innovative enough. Um, so we are now back to the drawing board with the same question three years later and, uh, and try, uh, 
trying to answer this question with carfilzomib pomalidomide dexamethasone or carfilzomib bispecific uh, antibody. And uh, now it's been approximately a few months and we are trying to get Janssen's support for this because we have to secure the funding first, even before it moves uh, uh, through the chain. We still think it will be a relevant question. Uh, but again, I think one of the difficulties as a, um, yeah, as a young investigator I'm facing is the inertia at which point, I'm always afraid at which point will this concept be dead in the water and again, I have to come back to the drawing board. That's my, that's my constant fear. After two years, if it gets rejected again, it has to start all over again. Um, and this, and this is um, despite being in a, in a cooperative committee with uh, Vincent uh, Shaji, who are all good myeloma clinicians uh, um, as well. This is, this is so, about three three years right now, almost three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Saad, I, I wanted to reflect as well, but I wanna I want you maybe uh, as you reflect. It seems like there is a very similar experience, although different countries, but. Um, as a listener, I'm just putting my listener hat. There seem to be to me like three issues, and I want to reflect on those. One is the process itself. It takes months to years even to even learn. Like would have been nice for morally to know that, you know what, the NCI wanted overall survival endpoint way before, you know, it should not take two and a half years for him to know that. There's one piece. Uh, why is the process too prolonged? Number two, uh, the funding mechanism, which um, Hira is still facing, but morally was able to secure. And still, despite that, um, what, was there an issue with that? And number three is um, really the way I would look at this is um, how do I describe it without offending the academic cultures? It's very important for junior investigators to have some of these studies under their belt. We all know that, you know, whether we like it or not, sometimes promotions are depending on this, recognition dependent on this. And, you know, as much as I hate to say that in academia, you are, you're, you know, having these trials and publications, very important career-wise, but it is a fact. And I hate to see, you know, three, four, five years going by thinking without having something fruitful. So, Reflect on on these uh, as you address these points. No, I, I think the, these are genuine concerns, and you know, um, and um, you know, I would be uh, lying if I said it's not going to get harder. And uh, you know, the the reason for that is, you know, uh, funding remains an issue. Uh, you know, both in Canada and the U.S., the number of randomized phase three or phase two studies, depending on the patient population that, that the NCI mechanism can, can support is only two or three in the frontline setting, you know, um, you know, similar number in the relapse setting. And you have three very good cooperative groups, you know, the Alliance, SWOG and ECOG with smart people who are trying to come up with ideas. Um, if the, you know, we can come up with good research questions enroll patients together and move on to the next trial if the mechanism was fast enough. But, but it's, you know, I think part of the reason 
the system is set up this way is to perhaps you know control um, the number of studies that can actually go through the system. So that's that's my observation and comment. Um, the second important thing is the questions that both Hira and and Murali and and you know the ECOX all of us are trying to ask are non-pharma questions. They're academic questions, you know, and and bulk of the trials being done right now um, are you know, registrational studies, you know, how to get, um, you know, a drug or a combination approved in a certain um, uh, certain setting. And, and they have really, you know, taken over the bulk of what, you know, the, the kind of trials that are being done right now. Um, and, and, and they are innovative studies. A lot of innovation is coming from pharma. You know, the academicians are not creating cars and biospecifics or small molecules that we're trying to use for our patients. So, you know, there is, there's a disconnect, you know, those trials are reading out fast because, you know, companies move fast, you know, get sites in the US and, and ex-US and get the patients that they need, you know, but, but we're, you know, going through this process of developing a concept, submitting it, trying to get funding, you know, and that whole process I, I feel is a bit, um, you know, antiquated. Um, and you know we've we've talked among ourselves. We've we have brought these issues up, uh, you know, as well. Um, and we'll continue to you know champion for for a better system. But I, um, you know, I I I do feel that this will continue to be you know a long term problem. You know, I think one of the fears um, that that I have is uh, in a few years, you know, we, we won't be the ones that are driving the research questions. You know, in academia. Because, uh, you know, I, I think um, a lot of this will be coming from the industry. Um, you know, we, we are seeing this uh, brain drain to industry as well. A lot of, you know, smart investigators are, are leaving academia because of these frustrations and, and uh, you know, going to the pharma side of things. So, um, you know, um, uh, you know, if someone makes that choice, you know, there's nothing wrong with that choice or motivation. But I'm just saying that, you know, that also, you know, lends to, you know, this this sense of, uh, you know, not getting that academic recognition or satisfaction that drives people to that decision making. So, um, so yeah. those are just, no, you know, some of my reflections, Shadi. I'm sorry. I, I yeah, yeah. No, no, very, very important. Um, Hira, are there other mechanisms to fund, for example, your trial, except pharma? I mean, other word, I mean, are you able to seek funding from somewhere else? So for the type of question that I'm trying to ask, there isn't because it's not, sorry, pharma is not interested, right? But I do, I do appreciate Saad's comments a lot. And, you know, I struggle with that sometimes because it's hard to know how much energy, honestly, to put into a cooperative group trial that maybe is never going to move as a, as the junior investigator, but also how to kind of get into the loop of some of the pharma trials, which, you know, are again, hard to break those barriers when people, when you're just starting off. Um, so for, for, for my particular trial, you know, it's going to be the big Canadian uh, funding agencies uh, that we're going to be applying large grants for. And again, it is good to get global, some of the global support as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll go in with strong letters of support from lots of international key opinion leaders, which will be helpful. But otherwise, I sometimes wonder about patient advocacy groups and that, and, you know, so we're going to look at that as a potential mechanism for parts of our question, not the entire trial. But for example, for my particular trial, the cost of the drug is not an issue because we're going to use standard of drugs. And, you know, if at some point the standard of care in Canada 
reimbursed were to change to a four drug instead of three drug, we would be able to adapt to that. Um, but we can't, pharma's not particularly interested in a, a de-escalation type question. But, you know, again, questions around trials which focus on quality of life and health economics, I sometimes wonder if there was an opportunity for some, you know, our Ministry of Health to kind of come in and say, you know what, if I save a year of daratumumab, I can fund the entire trial for the entire duration. But it's this disconnect this red tape between all these different agencies where there's absolutely no crosstalk. So even though I actually work in a publicly funded national healthcare system, each agency has its own different mandate. And you can't see if you save money here, you actually save money for the whole country, but it's just not seen that way. Um, but again, those are some of the barriers for, and there are lots of you know great examples of countries that do use more of a uh, where their their government is much more supportive of, of cooperative group tribe trials and and that's something I think that at least in Canada we really need to move towards. Morally, um, are, do you have any opportunities to fund this outside of uh, uh, the maker of uh, Daratumumab? Not much, um, uh, Charlie. And I agree with Saad's point, and I actually want to ask Saad. Uh, Saad, that's a great point which you made that most of the trial are more like, for example, currently the data to map based trials uh, in first relapse versus a bispecific is being run by pharma, pharma, which is very fair. The question then becomes, what will be the role of us as academic clinicians and uh, how can we then contribute? Because we are foreseeing a future now where DARA may, may be used or may not be used very well in the frontline setting, but there's enough evidence. What about these patients in first relapse if if pharma just runs a DARA-based trial? Uh, what are their options? and how do you yeah. envision the academics future uh, or our, our role in this? It's important really because, you know, um, that, that's a very good question and I can share some of my thoughts because, um, uh, you know, I, I took over from, from Paul as the chair of the Alliance Myeloma Committee in December. So, so the cooperative group issue is now actually, you know, a, a problem that I think about um, a lot as well, um, you know, Yes, pharma is doing those, you know, randomized phase three studies, but what's the true number of patients from the United States institutions that are going to be enrolled? It's probably going to be less than 10%. Um, you know, one can still make a strong case about asking an academic question with our pharma colleagues um, in, in, you know, in specific patient populations. Um, we know that the practice in the United States, uh, you know, a lot of patients are going to be progressing on lenalidomide right after that first relapse. So, you know, design a study that kind of addresses that particular question in, in that particular space. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's just as an example, you know, to, to what you're trying to do, um, you know, but make sure that you power it in such a way um, that, you know, you're actually able to, you know, get the question answered. It's okay to negotiate with CTEP or the NCI Myeloma Steering Committee. You know, when you do get that feedback from, from them, there are going to be six or seven or eight points that they make. They're going to be flexible on most of those points. Try to identify the points that they will be, you know, they will say, all right, if, if you, we can't negotiate on this, you have to make this change. 
if that change or 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 rather you know if that specific um, you know suggestion makes your study impractical in terms of reading out 10 years from now you know it's okay just just move on but but if you know uh, you know that that impossible you know uh, you know change is is palatable and you still get your answers 5 or 6 years from now proceed you know with with that idea but you know, my my advice would be persevere. You know, that's the life of a clinical investigator. Saad, Saad, can I ask you a question that just comes to mind? So yes. uh, you, in your answer to my previous question, you said the you've got Alliance, SWAG, and ECOG, and there seems to be some competition on resources between the cooperative groups because we, funding cannot be assured with this. Why do we need through cooperative groups? How about one cooperative group that gets these resources? I mean, why do we compete against each other? So, um, you know, United States is more like a continent rather than a country. You know, it's a big geographic area. And, um, you know, the cooperative group mechanism used to be, you know, much more broader, you know, say 10 years ago. I think there were like 15 or 16 different cooperative groups and they were paired down to these three. So the, the effort was exactly what you're saying, you know, um, you know, create, you know, a more uniform way of, of doing, doing things. And these cooperative groups were geographically divided, um, you know, but there is, you know, it, it, if you're a SWOG institution, there's no reason why you can't do an alliance trial. And that's kind of the deal that that the three you know disease chairs made um, that you know if ECOG is going to propose a study, SWOG and Alliance will support it. If Alliance is coming up with an idea in the randomized phase three setting, um, you know the other two cooperative groups will support it. So so that's how the SWOG eighteen oh three is being supported by all the cooperative groups. There is no other maintenance trial right now in that setting. Um, you know. When endurance trial was run, you know, the KRD versus VRD, all the three cooperative groups, even though it was an ECOG idea, we were enrolling patients on those trials, you know, and on that, that particular study. So, you know, we've, uh, what, you're making a good point, but we've already kind of moved from yeah. that yeah. wild, wild west to a more, yeah. you know, no, that's, that's very, very helpful. Morally and here, uh, Morally mentioned this, and I want to have your reactions to this. Um, Morally said, well, what is going to be the role of academicians? And Saad, you answered this, but if Pharma is sponsoring these trials. So my question is to you, Morally, and to Hira, is there are some that might argue, well, just say no to Pharma. If a Pharma comes in to you with this Pharma-sponsored trial that you think is useless and it's not helpful, just say no. And then you almost like forcing the hand of Pharma to do the trials that you think as an academician are mostly important. So nobody is forcing you to open a trial that is pharma sponsored at your institution. You can simply say no. And this way, if all of the investigators say no to the pharma studies that we don't think are helping patients or are academically inclined, then pharma will have to go back to the drawing board and must design better trials that align with the academic mission and with what investigators think. I'd like to have your reaction, the three of you to this. I'll start with Hira. Um, so I guess my feedback would be that I think that a lot of times 
most of the times, a lot of the trials that are being done by pharma are actually really innovative and are really helpful. They provide my patients with better options than standard of care. So for me, the ultimate line for not opening a trial at my site is only if I think in the my standard of care is better than the control arm. That's the only time I would say no. So, but you have to remember, I again practice in a different setting, right? So if a comparator arm, if a control arm for me in first relapse is DVD, that may not be your standard of care, but that's my standard of care. And so I will open that trial. If it's a doublet with KD, I will open that because that's my standard of care. But you know, if I had a VD, for example, as a control arm, I would not open that trial. So for me, that's kind of the ultimate. Again, you know, as Canadians, you know, we're always kind of in the middle ground. We never debate. We're, we're always neutral. Um, I, I would, I, I wish that there was just more opportunity for both, again, investigator-initiated studies with pharma where we can work together. And often, you know, one of the challenges, again, I have and saw briefly, you know, talked about this, but, but if you're trying to propose a trial with two different companies, it's like impossible, like, like forget it. And so, so then the only mechanism I have is through a cooperative group. So I wish that we could actually convince pharma to continue to open lots of trial, continue to do innovation. We want to be a part of it. And I wish that there was more of a mandate from pharma to say, you know, we are going to open X number of investigator initiated trials, X number with early investigators in it and have us be more involved. But I, I honestly think it's a partnership, especially in Canada. I rely on pharma to bring therapies to my patients that I don't have access to. This may not be the controversial answer that you had wanted. I'm sorry. No, no, no. So <laughs> That's my, my I, reality. I also, I, um, I don't have, you know, I don't have kind of any funding for academic trials at my site. So I rely on the surplus revenue generated from pharma trials to open, you know, the SWOG trial, Assad, we were unable to open at my site. Um, the maintenance trial, because the deficit was just so high, I couldn't make it up with all the pharma trials. So I need the pharma trials. I just want more of a partnership and ability to, again, steer as a junior investigator some other so, questions. Daddy, can I make that comment? Yeah, but I just don't worry. Yeah. I'm not looking for controversial answers, just honest yeah. answers. But go ahead. So I, again, I, I want to um, get to that point. You know, so, so the the practical aspect of this um, issue is, you know, we, we need uh, money to fund our clinical trials research um, uh, support infrastructure, right? So uh, the cooperative group mechanism, um, you know, is a losing proposition. It's a flat fee, very low, and you always lose money when you do an NCI uh, CTEP run clinical trial. Um, so, you know, the institution has to have a balance of of doing IITs and, and, and pharma studies, because that's where, you know, um, you know, the, the, the resources come from. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a balancing act. I, I agree with, uh, with Hira, you know, um, and, and um, uh, you know, the, the standard of care arm issue is, is a real one. And that's the reason why a lot of um, the pharma trials end up enrolling patients, you know, in Europe, in Asia, and in, in, I should say Australasia, because access to drug is not the same, you know, um, even, you know, for you, Hira, the access of, of drugs is better than a lot of places in the world, right? So, so in the US, we, again, are, you know, we, we, we are super blessed from, from that standpoint. Saad, sometimes these trials that are using a substandard control arm, 
and are 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 used with the FDA to approve the, the new drug, despite substandard control arm, it lends to approving a drug and then the drug gets used in the US while we know that the control arm was substandard. How do you reconcile this? Because that trial was, was conducted I, out I there. Agree. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think you know the, the time when when the three versus two drug trials were being done and, and we actually have some some recent uh, examples but you know most of the big academic centers stop accepting those trials so you know um you know that the last three versus two drug study that that i got involved with you know was was scandal and that study started and was designed back in late 2016 and and at that time you know we were just learning about the early data from pollux and castor and and so you know um you know but but you know since then most academic centers you know they they don't uh, accept those um those arms because that's that's simply not our standard of care um uh, so you know uh, yeah. Yeah. there are investigators however you know who who open those studies and participate in it for uh, you know but, um Anyway, so, so. so more, more, let me have you reflect on the first question. I want to go back to the control arm because I have a provocative question for all of you. I'd like you to react to just came to my mind, by the way. But Moral, do you feel that you have the power to kind of force the hand of pharma to say, OK, I'm not going to open this trial. So they get stuck. They must open a study that the, that you as an academician agree to. I think when I open a study, the real question is like Hira and both sides said is, does it benefit my population? That is my first thinking when I open, when I open a study. And uh, if there is a chance that it benefits the patients whom I serve, that takes precedence over an academic question whenever um, I open a study. So that's the first thing. Uh, Shadi, for example, the Dara bispecific versus Dara, Dara palm decks or Dara velcate decks. If the standard arm, if the SOC arm did not include Dara palm decks, it would be nearly impossible for us to enroll it in the US uh, with the Dara velcate decks alone. And the pharmaceutical companies know this. So that is why there are two options. And maybe Dara Velcade Dex is not available in other parts of the world. And for that population, that might be appropriate. So I think every investigator, when they open a study at their center, thinks more of their population and access to that particular drug rather than um, the academic question. Um, so that's what I want to say. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm still flabbergasted by the years, four years now, here is going, and three years for, for Morley uh, is going. And, and frankly, let's be honest, we, we still don't know whether any of these two trials will open. I mean, let's be realistic, right? Um, and if they open by the time they enroll, and we're talking six years from now, will be, and who knows where the myeloma field will be there. But here's, here's my question, and I, I just thought about this, and I'm actually really curious your thoughts, and I'll start with Hira. So we talk about the sub, substandard control arm in a clinical trial setting, but shouldn't we be looking also at the real-world uptake of what we think the proper control arm is? Um, I'm just going to give you an example. So let's say in Canada, the proper control arm usage is KD or whatever. Like it's it's a it's a reasonable control arm. 
right? KD, right. But theoretically, let's say we conduct a real world data analysis of patients in Canada with that particular disease in that particular setting. And we find out that, you know what, 70% of these patients are not getting KD, they're getting D or whatever it is. Isn't it fair that maybe if you do a clinical trial that incorporates novel agent then plus D against D will be still okay because you get access to this newer drug and you're not really saying the patient's receiving substandard control arm because in the real world, they're not getting what you think they should be getting. I guess the simple way to phrase my question, which has gotten too convoluted, is what we think is the control arm is what we believe patients should be receiving. But we know that patients in the real world don't always receive what we think they should receive. So is it fair to design a trial with the control arm being the arm, being the drugs that are mostly used in a real world setting? All right. So, so let me, you know, um, give, give a 30,000, you know, uh, foot view to this a bit. Um, so that standard of care, Chadi, you know, um, that keeps on evolving and changing based on regulatory approvals. Um, so it's, it's not a constant. If a trial is enrolling over a three-year period, given the fact that we have so many other randomized studies that are reading out and you know companies getting to regulatory approval, those options being added to the quote unquote standard of care that's out there, um, you know, your, your standard of care arm gets extremely heterogeneous um, and, and you lose the power to answer the question that you started off with. So, you know, the, the answer to that question is if the standard of care was consistent you know, over a certain period of time, you know, that's that's totally fine because what's what's what you're doing there is your experimental arm is remaining the same over a course of three years of enrollment, but the standard of care arm keeps on changing. You know, so so you won't be able to you know um, you you won't be able to predict you know what the measure of success is, or to achieve whatever that hypothetical measure of success you know, would be. So, um, so that's, that's my yeah, thought. I mean, I guess, I guess the, the question is here is, and, and so this very, what you said is very, very important, but is the control arm, should the control arm be what the control arm has been in prior clinical trials or what patients indeed receive outside of trials in the real world? I mean, what, but what patients receive outside in the real world may be different in different regions. Um, right, right, right. right so, so you uh, won't be able to control for that. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, but that's, but, but, but I guess, I guess um, what I see in the real world is not always consistent with what clinical trials has published or has suggested or has recommended. I think it is, fair assessment that patients in the real world don't always receive what we have theorized to be the best therapy uh, because of a variety of reasons. Access, uh, uh, lack of education, perception of uh, poor tolerance, whatever it is. But if you do, an if you right now, you go and look, for example, at uh, 
real world data of whatever lung cancer or myeloma, you are unlikely to see that consistency of even three versus two. You'll see a lot of heterogeneous approach. And um, if you're designing clinical trial and you're bringing a novel agent to that trial and you're picking a control arm, do you choose a control arm based on what you are seeing patients receiving in the real world or based on what has been established in prior clinical trials? I think it should be clinical trials, but I can understand when you actually choose real world data. So, so if you have a very well-controlled experimental arm and, and a not controlled heterogeneous standard of care arm, the experimental arm uh, will be positioned to succeed if it's uh, an effective uh, therapy, right? So, um, so in, in that case, you know, my bias would be that you're already, you know, uh, actually favoring the experimental arm to kind of win um, in that scenario. Um, you know, the point that you're making is, is absolutely right. You know, um, do all the patients who start on, you know, a carfilzomib-based triplet continue that regimen you know, um, you know, for, for five or six years, no, you know, you, you get to a certain, you know, response and then you drop off, you know, one or two partners and then just keep going with one, the same with a data triplet, you know, you, you get to a certain response and then you're trying to pair things off and make things better for your patient, you know? So, so are we following those clinical trials, you know, from a practical standard of care standpoint? No, I mean, we, we are, we are, you know, we're, taking care of, of patients, you know, based off of, um, you know, um, you know, their decisions, their, their lifestyle choices, their safety profiles, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, will the outcomes be the same as clinical trials? Probably not, you know, maybe, you know, who knows, but, uh, you know, the assumption would be that, um, you know, the patient's in the grand scheme of things, you know, in, in the full picture, if you were to look at that heterogeneous pattern, you won't get the same, you know, kind of PFS or responses as things were done in, in the clinical trial. Um, does so, that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, no, it does. It does. It does totally. I mean, it's just a question just came to mind because I, you see so much heterogeneity in how patients are treated. Um, you've been very generous with your time, by the way, and we're very sensitive to your time. I know on the East Coast, it's getting a little bit longer. For listeners, we're taping literally on Saturday night because, you know, we, we don't really care. Saturday night, Friday night, we're always uh, working. <laughs> I'm just saying that. But I do want to finish with an important um, question that all of you want to react to um, because it stems a little bit from the latest ASCO um, uh, meeting that we actually had even by, at the time when a trial is finished and complete accrual and the results are out there and presented, whether it's plenary session or non-plenary session, there remains controversy into how to interpret the results. So not only, not only it's taking like three years and four years and five years to even launch a trial, if it gets launched and maybe 10 years to get published, but even if it's published here, people will probably not buy the, your conclusions. And the same for morally. I mean, that's, the, that's what's probably happened. The determination trial comes to mind. Again, I'm not a myeloma expert, but obviously I've listened to the presentation. I've listened to all of this. But this is an example where a trial took a long time to be published and presented. It was a plenary presentation. And I think it's probably fair to say 
that there remains controversy into how to interpret the results. I sense that, maybe I'm wrong, but I sense some people said, well, this means I don't need to transplant. Uh, some people say it means, no, I can still transplant, but maybe I don't need to twist the arm for a transplant, whatever it is. Tell me your reaction, uh, Hira, about the determination trial and what's your sense about how long it took to enroll and whether you believe it created controversy or do you think it solidified the role of transplant? So a couple of points about this one. So, you know, it's it's interesting because we always talk about best treatment up front. We always talk about attrition. We always talk about never making it to that second line of treatment when we talk about a lot of other effective regimens. But for something like transplant, you know, even with the improved PFS, it didn't have the OS. Somehow those issues I felt like, like of attrition and getting to that second transplant in the real world have been a little bit less emphasized. So, um, and some of it, again, I wonder about whether or not if this was a really cool um, uh, non-melphalan-based treatment. So if this was like a, a drug that made a lot of money, how would those results have been interpreted? Would they have been interpreted differently? At, in Canada, you know, we are big believers in transplant because it's the absolute cheapest therapy that you can give to somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> exactly, Asad. So it's 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 so for me when I look at those results, I say, you know what? My very cheap, effective therapy that I can give in a publicly funded healthcare system, and I know my patients may not get to second line treatment for whatever number of reasons. Hey, this works. I got a good PFS out of it. It's better than my non-transplant arm. That's the interpretation I got to it. But it is, it is incredible. I I just sometimes, and I would love to hear others on the uh, uh, their their opinion. If this was truly a drug that had made a lot of money, would the interpretation of the trial have been different? Is it because transplant, you know, is cheap and effective that? There's so much controversy around it. I don't know, again, <laughs> those were just my thoughts, but I, I transplant, I will continue to transplant. This is further affirmed for me, uh, the role of transplantation. Morali, how do you interpret the results and your reflections on it? So uh, I uh, with, agree with Hira that if any, it was a drug which made a lot of money, we would have really been celebrating. Uh, with the respect to the determination trial, I think at least, so the first one is whether people have access to transplant in the relapse setting as well. If they have access to transplant for standard risk patients, for me, it allows them to completely choose at um, whether a, at a first a remission or at second remission or, or at first relapse. So that's how, I am interpreting this and also saying, look, you have a long PFS. I think it basically reaffirms that at standard risk, we can de defer transplant provided patients will have the same reasonable access to transplant uh, as they come and see me during the first time. Regarding the overall survival, I mean, I should say I, I support Saad's tweet, which is, you have to always look at 10 years. Still, the follow-up is short enough and we really don't know. I mean, even though the curves are very close, it might be very different. For example, at seven-year follow-up, if the non-transplant arm or deferred transplant arm already had, the patients had already 
underwent a CD38, carfilzomib and pomalidomide, only now, later, then the curves might be separating. While if in the transplant arm, if it didn't, then the overall survival might be better. What is more intriguing to me is actually how did the PFS of the transplant arm disappear? So that's the most interesting question. And what, what equalized it? Um, so those were my thoughts. Saad, you did call this a very interesting uh, name. So why don't you have your reflections on this and, and, and opinions on the trial? So you know, again, you know, I'm looking at this from from the scope of having listened to talks from you know many of my myeloma, you know, colleagues who used to be like my my icons, you know, back in the mid 2000s, and I used to listen to these talks. Now that we have these novel agents, you know, proteasome inhibitors and imits, what is the real role of transplant? And you know, it's funny that you know we're here in 2022, you know, and and I hear the same same question despite the fact that we've had several trials where high dose melphalan, you know, has has shown us, um, you know, these results. So, so first off, this is not an early versus late transplant study. It's early versus no transplant. You know, that's what's been reported because very few patients actually got a transplant, you know, at, at this follow-up of time. Um, so um, um, the, what was the primary endpoint? It was PFS. You know, um, you know, if this was Maya being presented, we would be celebrating Maya, you know, and that's what we did. Maya was an ASH LBA and reported very similar kind of PFS benefit. Um, um, you know, the, the OS issue, I agree, you know, Morali, the, I try to point this out, you know, back when the OS difference was shown, um, you know, for myeloma in transplant versus standard of care studies, the OS for myeloma was two to three years. So you would see those separation of curves and, and you'd be able to tell the difference, you know, at the three or four year follow-up mark. But you can't see that now, even for the land maintenance OS benefit, we had to wait for at least eight years. And, and so, you know, um, you know when, when you only have a shorter follow-up um, and the OS is not met in both the arms of the study, the right conclusion is OS has not been met for both arms of the study. The statement that there is no difference in OS is completely wrong. Okay, so so I kind of disagreed with you know my esteemed colleague when he presented the data and and um, you know and and you know made that statement, but but that's also you know some of the inherent inherent biases that you know um, we have as investigators. If we design a study, we want to answer a study, it you know the answer comes out the total opposite of what we wanted. You know, we still want to, you know, hold on to some of those biases and, and you know, what we need to do as investigators is, is, is do a bit better. So I hope, Chadi, this is enough controversy for you. No, I love it. And you said it's the name. So is, what's the final answer, Saad? Yes or no? Transplant tumumab one. Yeah, transplant. So quick question, but, but, but you know, Morley's trial was returned back because his primary endpoint was not overall survival in the relapse setting. Are you saying in the relapse setting, it must be overall survival in frontline setting is progression-free survival side? So my, my short answer is, you know, it should be PFS, uh, you know, for, for each, each the frontline as well as the first, um, uh, um, you know, first relapse setting. By the time you're waiting for OS, you know, just like you highlighted, 
Um, you know, you've waited enough time. There are other registrational studies that have led to approvals, and now the standard of care has changed, and the practice is changing. And your question, you know, the answer that that you try to answer with OS is no longer relevant. So I think that becomes a challenge when you have a disease that has an you know median OS of eight to ten years now. Um, you know, if this was Spank, you know, it would be OS would be a reasonable you know question. But, right? but, but Morali, didn't they return your trial set because there was no OS uh, primary endpoint? Did I miss that? Didn't you say that? Yes. That so, was... Yeah. So so no no I I agree with that. But but what I'm trying to say is, you know that that was that was the wrong decision. You know and and. Yeah. yeah, and and that was not the myeloma investigators. Yeah, yeah, I know that was the NCI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, look, we need to finish with uh, concluding statements by each one of you. Uh, I'm going to tell you my concluding statement because you may laugh at this. When I did my internship, I'm going to tell you how we treated multiple myeloma. The median survival, by the way, was about three years. The way we treated myeloma, all transplant ineligible patients received melphalan and prednisone and transplant-eligible patients received VAD, followed by transplant. That was it, actually. That was how we treated multiple myeloma. It was easy for, for me to, to get that, um, just to give you an idea. So concluding statements, Hira. So uh, I guess, you know, I have learned a lot during this podcast. Um, good to know that some of the challenges I face are, are actually not so unique and they're actually, I feel bad, you know, Morali sounds, sounds like he was way farther ahead and had to come all the way back down. But I appreciate Saad's comments around just persevering um, and just keep going at it. And I hope that again, you know, a lot of senior investigators like Saad, like Vincent have, have really done a lot for junior investigators in terms of mentorship. And again, to emphasize that point again, that is absolute key because otherwise I feel like we would just, I don't know, Morali, how you feel. Sometimes I feel like I would just get crushed and become so little. Um, but mentorship through ASH CRTI, you know, this year I'm doing the ASCO clinical trials course. Those, those are so key in seeing for junior investigators where where we may be right and also where we may be wrong and how to improve on things. Um, so that would kind of be my key point. I really appreciate it. Again, Marali and I have had similar experiences, so good to know and really appreciate Saad's thoughtful comments as a senior investigator. Morali, uh, concluding remarks from your standpoint. Certainly doing clinical trials is extremely hard and uh, Actually, Saad sounds very much like Vincent <laughs> in the sense that uh, uh, <laughs> negotiate, accept, uh, don't budge on certain things, but budge on certain things. So, uh, Ali, I'm trying to get people to disagree with each other. I, I want Rafael Fonseca, Vincent, Saad, Sagar, they all like screaming at each other. I, that's how I get clicks on the podcast. You're making it so easy. Okay, fine. That's fine. You keep going. I think, I mean, past a certain age, I think we all acquire wisdom. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not saying you're old, okay? No, no, I know, I know, I know. I'm older than um, you, by the way. So, uh, I, um, I think uh, Hira's struggles and my struggles is what Saad also came through. That's what I, that's what I hear. I wish the system is better or we can redefine academic purpose of, of our cooperative groups. Maybe 
I, I don't know. Maybe we should be focusing on not phase threes or uh, phase twos or or more translational questions. Uh, if we if it's very difficult to fund, that's my that's my thinking. Should we really still do? Should cooperative groups still really do phase three trials? Um, just as a challenging question uh, to do, but uh, I will certainly persevere and uh, uh, try and answer uh, uh, this question. And it was great hearing Hira's thoughts, which and it's a completely different public funded system, much more challenges than mine. <laughs> Sad, uh, concluding remarks. No, I, um, you know, my my final thoughts are, uh, you know, have already been echoed by both Hera and Morali. You know, uh, persevere as an investigator. Um, you know, that's that's what we we do. You know, we we try to make things better for our patients. The environment is not, um, you know, very uh, easy, uh, but it's not inhabitable. Um, so you know, uh, just persevere. Uh, find like-minded people. And, and keep on asking, you know, the right questions, you know, modify your questions, uh, seek advice, um, and, uh, you know, find your, your base group that, that continues to help and support you, you know, and it, it will be a mix of, you know, peers as well as senior investigators, but, um, you know, that's, that's how you get through this. Um, you know, this, this is not easy and the landscape will continue to change. Yeah, well, look, the three of you, you've been absolutely wonderful to, to have on the podcast. This has been the highlight of my week. Um, I usually, at the end of each podcast, I put a quote or, a, or a, something I really inspiring uh, from, the, from the podcast. And uh, you listen to it, but I just thought I'll, uh, I'll let you know one of my favorite quotes uh, is by Pelé, who is a, a soccer player, as you know, from Brazil. And he once said, success is no accident. It is hard work, perseverance, learning, studying, sacrifice, and most of all, love of what you are doing or learning to do. So there's zero doubt in my mind that Morali and Hira are going to be absolutely amazing. They're going to continue to be excellent investigators. And I'll be cheering for both of you on the sidelines. And um, and uh, Saad will provide all of the support along with many of the senior investigators. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And thank you for the t-shirts. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm going to go for a run with the wearing this the, now. The best in business, I'm telling you. <laughs>
and before I let you go, I really want to leave you with a quote that I mentioned on the podcast, but it is one of my favorites. It is stated by Pelé. Success is no accident. It's hard work, perseverance, learning, studying, sacrifice, and most of all, love of what you are doing or learning to do. Thank you for supporting Healthcare Unfiltered. Until next time.